This is Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under the radar statewide story that affects you. I'm Shana Roth. Retirements don't always get a lot of attention, but when you're the chief justice of the state's highest court, it's pretty huge. So to help me unpack this, I'm joined again today by Bridge Michigan reporter Stella Yu. Stella, welcome to Mishmash. Thanks for having me again. Justice Bridget McCormick was first elected to the Michigan Supreme Court in 2012 and became chief justice in 2019. And she has had a huge impact on the court. I remember working on a piece about how the court was pretty fractured before she came on board and she was able to act as a sort of peacemaker on the bench with both parties actually getting along pretty well over the last few years. Stella, what do you think the impact of McCormick's leaving will be overall? Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, you know, she was kind of this uniting factor um, of a pretty divided court. But overall, I would say, you know, she also led the Supreme Court through um, the COVID-19 pandemic, during which a lot of the court proceedings had to take place over Zoom. Um, So she's really open to this idea of modernizing court proceedings. Um, A lot of the documents are now online, uh, they're digitized. Um, And another one, uh, it would be remiss not to mention that during um, her court's latest ruling, they they ordered uh, the state to place the abortion rights proposal onto the November ballot. Uh, despite some of the challenges that uh, there were, there were apparent word spacing issues, which the law is silent on uh, in this ballot proposal language. And so I think that really was a ruling that would uh, become a pretty significant precedent for the Board of State canvassers to follow. When can you certify a ballot measure and whether you can do that based on um, requirements not spelled out in the law? You had a fantastic piece in Bridge this week. I mean, you had several and we'll get to them. Uh, But one of the pieces is called McCormick Retirement Could Help Democrats Keep Edge on Michigan Supreme Court. Talk us through how her retirement possibly could help Democrats. So right now, Democrats, they hold a four to three edge on the court. So the timing of McCormack's retirement is really interesting because she promised to leave after November 22nd, which is pretty specific date, but also she promised to leave before the end of the year. So what that does is that definitely gives Whitmer, instead of whoever wins the governor's seat comes November or, you know, in January, um, that definitely gives Whitmer the chance to replace her. And so Whitmer has already promised to do so. And that is probably with a Democrat, right? So Democrats are likely still going to be able to hold on to this edge on the Supreme Court. And also, um, the the state law doesn't give the Republican-led legislature any chance to weigh in on Whitmer's decision. So the decision is completely hers. And whoever she picks will serve until 2024. And then um, this person will be up for election to serve the remainder of McCormack's term, which is going to last until 2028. And it's always a benefit when you're up for election. Coming in as an incumbent justice is is a huge, huge benefit. Let's talk about another great piece you had this week. It was called Michigan Republicans Escalate LGBTQ Attacks. Will voters embrace them? And for those that were fortunate enough to miss a recent display of homophobia and truly ridiculous and disgusting behavior by one of the heads of the Michigan Republican Party, let me fill you in. 
Earlier this week, Michigan Republican Party co-chair Mishan Maddock tweeted about U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who is openly gay and married with children. Mishan Maddock called him a, quote, weak little girl. This is not the first and unlikely to be the last of Republicans really going a specific kind of low in their attack of Democrats. You pointed out in your piece that last month, Matt DiPerno, who is the Republican nominee for state attorney general, called current attorney general Dana Nessel, who is a lesbian, the, quote, groomer general. Democratic state senator Mallory McMorrow, based on absolutely nothing, was accused of supporting the grooming and sexualization of children in an April fundraising email sent out by Republican state senator Lana Tice. Tice has not backed down or apologized or justified this outrageous allegation. Stella... You attribute this in part to a, quote, growingly intense culture war. What what do you mean by that? What's going on here? I think we're all seeing this where, um, you know, parents who were concerned about their children's uh, either, you know, health care choices, namely, you know, mask mandates or vaccine mandates or their children's education. They really sprung to action during the pandemic. And uh, there's this whole movement of you know, so-called parental rights going on. Right. And so, um, so yeah, so during the pandemic, um, some of the parents, they realized, oh, I actually have not stepped into my child's classroom. I'm seeing how they're learning via zoom, uh, in my kitchen with my eyes. And so they may not agree with some of the things that their children are, uh, exposed to, Um, or, you know, things that they hear that other children are exposed to that they don't necessarily agree. So there are a lot of chatters from um, concerned parents, most of them conservative, um, about different things that are just spreading like wildfire nationwide. I guess it was really exacerbated during the pandemic um, where, you know, conservative theories that critical race theory is being taught in schools, um, that there are LGBTQ values that we don't believe should be taught in schools. Um, These theories kind of led to these talking points uh, that Republicans very conveniently elevated to, um, you know, sometimes transphobic and homophobic terms. That's where you see Matt DiPerno and Lana Tice uh, and a lot of other top Republicans calling calling their opponents groomers, um, calling, you know, um, uh, Pete Buttigieg attacking his um, sexual orientation and calling him a weak little girl. And in fact, uh, Michelle Maddox still did not back down from her comment. Uh, she recently just released a statement saying that she won't back down for calling someone weak. We should point out that at various points, there have been several Republicans who have spoken out against these attacks. And the targets of these attacks will often tell you, you know, the slurs are disgusting and outrageous, but sticks and stones. Where this gets interesting is how it's going to impact voters. Obviously, like we mentioned, there's not a consensus over whether or not this particular tactic is the right way to go, both from a moral perspective, but also from a voting perspective and in a bringing the party together perspective, uh, as far as Republicans are concerned. Does the Republican Party think that these types of attacks are going to help? Or in your mind, is this some, you know, sort of rogue members who need to have their Twitter accounts deactivated? So from my conversations with uh, strategists and experts, I think the the answer to that is a little bit more nuanced. Um, And so they're saying that um, it should be a great strategy for Republican candidates 
or, or some of these um, conservative groups to take the most extreme examples, say, you know, a sexually explicit book and try to make that the face of the Democratic Party or whoever they're running against, right? Uh, but at the same time, you're seeing um, some of these name-calling strategies that are you know, drawing attacks from their own party members. Um, there have been some people, including, you know, two state lawmakers cited in my piece who have said that this is too much. Um, although you can disagree on issues and really like dive down into it, dive into some of these issues. Um, they're saying that, you know, you can't treat people like this, that this type of name calling strategy should not have a place in polite public discourse. Um, and so um, people I have talked to seem to think that this would not really help the Republican Party, especially the top three candidates who are running against Democratic incumbents, um, namely, you know, Matt DiPerno, who's running for AG, Christina Caramo, um, and Tudor Dixon. And Tudor Dixon also has said that um, she would support, um, you know, kind of criminalizing the act of, you know, adults taking their children to a drag show. And so she has um, demonstrated, um, you know, hostility um, toward, you know, drag queens or similar culture. And so um, you do see this coming from the Republicans, a growing focus on culture war issues, right? But some of them, some of the strategists are arguing that this should not be the focus. Um, they should be talking about inflation. They should be talking about crime. And culture war, especially when it comes to name calling, would sometimes alienate independent voters. And this, this would not work to their favor, especially when they're trying to raise money to beat these Democrats who have a huge fundraising edge over them. So whether that's going to work with the voters, um, at least according to the conversations I have had, that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, I mean, it seems like when it gets to name calling on either side, it does a lot for your basest base, your most diehard, the ones who, not even just the most diehards, the one who hate the other side the most, they seem to get a lot out of it. But the the further towards the middle that you go, the further independent, the further purple that you go, those are the people who are like, oh, this is the childish party. I'm going to probably veer more towards the other side, who's, you know, usually the subject of these name calling and attacks. But that can also depend on how the other side reacts and how are Democrats reacting to these types of attacks in Michigan? I think overall, you see Democrats really calling it out and uh, trying to capitalize on that. I mean, you see the Michigan Democratic Party, um, you know, sending out press releases about Tudor Dixon and about some of the other Republican candidates and their stance on culture war issues. Um, and so I think, yeah, I mean, I think the Democrats are really um, criticizing very vocally uh, this type of behavior as well. This really gives them ammo to describe the Republican Party as a hateful party. Let's move on before we head out to ballot proposals. Uh, depending on who you talk to, fall is upon us. If you ask Starbucks, it's definitely here because they've released their pumpkin spice latte and something that combines espresso and apple, which I'm a little bit skeptical of. But anyway, fall means that our November election is right around the corner and the ballot proposals are finalized. There are three ballot measures, enshrine abortion rights, change term limits, and allow nine days of early voting, among some other pieces in that measure to increase voting access 
access. Stella, keeping with our theme this episode, you wrote about what people need to know on these measures. What are some of the big points that people should be aware of going into November? First and foremost, I think um, one of the biggest proposals that would uh, potentially drive voter turnout, especially for the Democrats, is the abortion rights proposal. So one thing to pay attention to is the debate surrounding the actual effect of the abortion rights proposal. Um, And so there has been a lot of confusion for people, and I would argue even for the campaign lawyers when it comes to what the constitutional amendment would do. Um, So opposition has been uh, making a lot of claims. Uh, They're saying that if you enshrine the abortion rights um, into the state constitution, then it would nullify the state laws um, that are on the books restricting abortion, like parental consent. Um, They're also alleging that, um, you know, this proposal would basically allow uh, abortion up to the moment of birth, um, which, you know, does not happen, um, you know, frequently. And in fact, it happens very, very rare. And it does not happen like after birth. Um, And so that's according to the stats from the CDC, as well as other medical experts um, I've talked to as well. Um, You know, less than 1%, for example, of all the abortions um, in the nation happen beyond um, 21 weeks of gestation. As the November election nears, um, I think that's the number one issue on the abortion rights proposal that voters should be paying attention to. So the same thing goes for the term limits proposal as well as the promote the vote um, proposal. I'm guessing readers will start to see a lot of ads um, from both sides of those campaigns uh, that are trying to sway you one way or another. I would say um, take a close look at the language yourself or maybe um, consult a legal expert or even just come to us because we do have fact checks on, you know, exactly what these proposals do. One more thing I'll mention is focus on the money behind these ballot measures. Um, So as I mentioned way back in February, there are millions that are being spent on these ballot measures trying to either thwart the effort or push it forward. Um, And about 90% of the funds, we actually don't know where it comes from. And I think as the election years, it is a good reminder for readers um, or it's, it would be a good reminder for the listeners, hey, pay attention to who's actually funding these efforts and who's funding the other side. Because sometimes you will see that these are nonprofits or, it, it, you know, these could be national nonprofits that do not have to disclose their donors, meaning you really don't know who's actually funding them. Follow the money is probably one of my favorite uh, pieces of advice in politics whenever anyone is trying to sort out What's going on? Always follow the money. Stella Yu is a reporter for Bridge Michigan. Stella, thank you so much for joining me here today on Mishmash. Thank you. 